Well, as we think about Daniel, we certainly are following on a series. I'm grateful to Pastor Brad and him dealing with heart matters, King Josiah, and as Pastor Brad mentioned, Daniel was born under King Josiah, and Brad brought us into a great place of where Israel or where Judah was at the time. What follows is that Josiah's son did not follow in the path of his dad. So often, right, a son or a daughter goes off in a whole new direction. That's exactly what happened. And Judah very, very quickly spiraled down. And then we enter the story of Daniel. Now, Daniel is interesting, right? Because most of us are familiar with what? The fiery furnace, right? The friends going in there. Or we get tied to... Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and we think about these big dramatic stories, and they are. And then there's these other questions that begin to surface, and one of them is, that we hardly think about is, what was God doing in the moment? What was God doing in Judah and through Daniel and through the king and through all the people at that moment? And if we think a little bit longer, we start asking questions like, well, what was God doing in world history? What was God doing as all their things were starting to shake and move? And then if we ask a little deeper question, why would God want us to read, study, and understand the book of Daniel in the 21st century? What is it that God has for you and me this morning, right? So we start asking all these questions. Well, let me just cast the book of Daniel in the big, big picture. There was a shift in world powers, right? The major nations of the world were starting to get dethroned. So Egypt had already been a shadow of its former glory. Assyria now was being knocked off the throne by Babylon. So what we read in Daniel now is Babylon moving on to center stage and taking its bow. We are the superpower. We are the nation to reckon with. We are the world force. And of course, as they did this, the nations, the smaller ones, were trying to negotiate treaties, trying to figure out how to control this. Judah made its mistakes in bringing treaties and trying to manage Babylon, but Babylon came in, and where we're going to start today is not with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, but we're going to see how Babylon moved and started capturing the people of Judah. So if you have your Bible this morning, I want to open up to Daniel chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me just lob out a question. How would you live? How should we live when the world is on fire? When there's a shift going on in major world political scene, on the world political scene, how should we live? How should we understand what God is doing? Let me take it even a little deeper. How are we to make sense of our life when we're in a place we don't want to be? Have you ever been there? I was there all last week. I was in a place I did not want to be. What do you do 
when you're in so much pain and there's so much conflict in your world, relational stuff, how is it that God wants you to live? That's what we're going to begin to see this morning in Daniel chapter 1. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? We're going to read the first 10 verses in Daniel chapter 1. It begins, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that's Josiah's son, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this document, this ancient word of years, it's as relevant today as it was when it was written. You have a powerful word. You want to speak into our hearts the truths of the way you are working in the world, the way you are working in them, and the way you want to work in our world and in our lives. Give us those eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may grab a seat. You probably saw some of, uh, at least some of us as you were coming in, uh, we put together a, a booklet or a handout if you want to take notes, want to encourage you if that's convenient for you or helpful, uh, we have those available and in the back in the foyer so that we can study together as we walk through the book of Daniel. And of course, a lot is happening in the book of Daniel. And as we think about it this morning, let me bring you into a, a, a focus, right? You, you got to get from the abstract or from the big picture, because when you read this, it feels like just a very simple story. And we don't take time to recognize who are these people, what is really going on. So we see that we have Daniel and his three friends. If you want to characterize them, you could characterize them as POWs. They are prisoners 
of war. And let's be clear, really clear. War is ugly. War is ugly. When you're in a war, like what had happened to Judah, friends die. Family members die. Children are left as orphans. Women are raped. Homes are burned. Villages pillaged. Destruction and devastation everywhere. That was the environment where we need to see Daniel and his friends. War is incredibly ugly. On a more personal level, right? Daniel is out of a a noble family, which means what? Typically some money, some power or influence, we would say. He probably had some education behind him. And like all families, your family and his family, the parents probably had big dreams for Daniel, and Daniel probably had big dreams for himself. Think about your own dreams. If you're here and you're in your early 20s, you're dreaming of your future and what it would be like. If you're in your teens, you're dreaming of what your future might be like. As you move through life, you're dreaming bigger and bigger, right? Well, Daniel had all these dreams. His friends had all these dreams. They probably were in their middle to late teens when all this happened. So they were just on the the beginning of seeing life unfold. And all their hopes and dreams were shattered. They were now captives. Their future was altered. They had to make decisions. Were they going to conform to this new culture that they were being brought into? As I mentioned, Daniel was born, as Pastor Brad had mentioned, under the reign of King Josiah. And King Josiah had had brought about great reforms in Judah. Amazing things were happening. People were not only repenting, but they were reforming forming their lives, and the nation was being changed. But when the king came in, King Jehoiakim came in, he started to undo that, and he started to bring in foreign gods, and he started to undo all that his dad had done. So the high watermark of Judah was now gone. That's the situation of Daniel. So what we read The little section we read, there's this ray of hope. You start to feel like, wait, something's happening. Something is starting to break loose. Something is starting to shake. But what is it? And where's it going? So as we read the book, we're going to find out several things. But this morning, to give a little bit of structure... We're going to do three things. The first is this. There's going to be something you need to know. Something to know. Secondly, there's going to be something I want you to consider. Something to consider. And thirdly, something to do. But let's start with something to know. And here's what I want you to know. That God is faithful. 
something to know. God is faithful. When the world is on fire, when these shifts in world superpowers are taking place, that's, that's what I mean when I say the world is on fire. You, you got to ask yourself, how do you live faithfully in exile? How do you live as a POW? How do you serve the people that just slaughtered your friends and family members? How do you keep yourself from raging against the enemy that just destroyed your homeland? Daniel was ripped out of his home and would never return. Would you be endeared to someone that did that? That took all your dreams away? We don't know all that he lost. We don't know what family members. We don't know what cousins. We don't know what aunts and uncles. We don't know a lot of those kinds of things. But war is ugly. And in the midst of it, we need to know God is faithful. God is always doing something. And so right now, I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know this. There's a mess going on in our world. All you had to do was wake up this morning, look at your phone, and see that Israel was being attacked. And you start thinking, what in the world's going on? Who is behind all of this? Who's supporting it? Who's financing it? And you look back in just recent history, and we see the shaking up of China. We see North Korea doing unprecedented things. And we start asking ourselves, what's going on in our shift of world powers? And then we just start looking at our culture and we're like, whoa, where is this going? When is it going to stop? Is it going to stop? Can I control it? Can I change it? And what do we tend to do? As human beings, we tend to get outraged. We tend to get angry as if anger will accomplish the plans of God. So you have to ask yourself, how is it that Daniel could move into this culture and not be seething with anger. How did he find a place to serve the very person who destroyed everything that he ever knew? Penetrating questions, aren't they? Well, let's look at verse 1. It says there, Right, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it. Simple enough. The new superpower, Egypt was no longer a threat. Babylon knocks off Assyria, and now Babylon's moving and taking over more land, which included Judah, the southern part of Israel, and was now conquering them. They push up against Jerusalem. They don't yet destroy it. They don't destroy the temple, but they start taking all the people back as exiles. Their strategy, the Babylonian strategy, was not to leave people in their homeland. Yes, they would leave some, but certainly people of nobility, people of power, people of influence, they hauled back to their country to control them. Then, let's look at verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles, 
from the temple of God. So they get the articles out of the temple, this great temple of God that Josiah had rebuilt and reestablished. All these things were now functional. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes all of those things. But I want you to see just real briefly that the author, Daniel, writing this in verse 3, he says, some of the Israelites. I like the translation here. You have some of the articles, right, of the temple, physical things, and you have some of the Israelites. Now, I just want to pause just for a moment and ask you, who owns those things? Who owns those articles in the temple? Who owns these people called the Israelites? You know the obvious answer. They're gods. They're the one true gods. They're his. We'll dive deeper in just a moment. But let's look at Jeremiah 39 because he prophesied some things about 100 years before it happened. And so let's look at Jeremiah, Isaiah, I'm sorry, I said Jeremiah. Isaiah 39, Isaiah 39, verse 6 and 7. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. So Isaiah prophesied, told Judah, this is what's going to happen. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, we read that, and we can see that so much of this feels like this is just the way things go, right? From a human perspective, this is the way things are. But what if we took a moment and said, okay, there's Babylon, you've got Judah, and they've got their warriors, and if MSNBC or CBS or CNN were putting their cameras on it, you would say, yeah, Babylon came down and conquered Judah, and there's this king, and there's this king, and one king won, one nation overpowered another nation, right? That, that's how you would see it from CNN's point of view or Fox News. But what if you and I pulled back the curtain and could see what God was doing? What if these very verses we read, we didn't look closely enough and we missed seeing what God was actually doing in the moment? So I want to do that and show you a little more carefully what was going on. So in order to do that, you need to look at your Bible, verses 1 and 2 again. It says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, along with some of the articles from the temple, and he carried them off, I'm in verse 2, to the temple of his God. Remember, I asked you the question, whose articles were these? They're God's. And what did... Nebuchadnezzar do. He took them and brought them to the house of his God. These are things the world does not see, that there's a whole supernatural spiritual world taking place that is moving. 
Well, if we did the same with the people, the Israelites in verse 3, where were they brought? They were brought from their land, God's promised land, into the territory of the enemy's God. Verse 2, it says, the temple of God and the house of his God. So let me ask you, where is the real war? Is the real war really between Babylon and Judah? Or is the real deeper war between the gods of Babylon, gods plural, and the one true God? Aren't both or all trying to get the heart of all people? Isn't that what gods do? If you listen to Brad in his excellent series, he brought us into the idea of idolatry and that our hearts are idol-making factories and we're constantly trying to find pleasure and peace and contentment wherever we can. And these are gods with small g's. And Babylon had a lot, a pantheon of gods with small g's. And then there's the one true God. So from a spiritual perspective, so much more was going on than just two warring nations. So let me ask you, is more going on in your life than just what you see physically is more going on in our culture than just what you describe through politics or gender issues or sexual revolution is there more going on on the world stage than just Russia and China and North Korea and Israel and Hamas or is there some spiritual forces driving all of this? And if there are spiritual forces driving it, where are they taking it? These are the penetrating questions of Daniel. And we're going to find soon enough that it's an imaginable, unimaginable place where God wants us to go. But before we move on, as we continue to see the faithfulness of God, I do want us to go into Jeremiah. So just read with me along or follow along as I read Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. In other words, flourish. Verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You and I are exiles. This is not our home. 
We're in a war zone. Do you see it? And maybe Jeremiah is telling you and me something right now about how we should live. I love that line. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. How do you and I, as Christ followers, seek the peace in our country, in our culture, and in our world? Raging against it is not God's plan. How do we pray and live in the midst of it? That's where we need to talk but we are exiles. They were prisoners of war. It was ugly. God does not want you and me to be in bondage to anything. We are not prisoners of war. We are more free in Christ than you could ever imagine. But make no mistake, we are still in exile. This is not our home. Well, Jeremiah said a little bit more to help the people in exile, these POWs along. This is what the Lord says in 29 verse 10. He says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, God says, I'll come. I'll come to you and fulfill my good promises to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you believe that? God has a plan for your life, even in the midst of all that is going on. And I don't know all, but I know life is not easy and God has a plan to prosper you, just as he had a plan to prosper them, for them to live in the midst of this exile, for them to persevere for 70 years. God says, then I'm gonna come back. And come back, he did. And we're gonna read and we're gonna find out how God did it and how God shuffled the deck to make things go the way he wanted it to go. What I want you to know this morning is that God is faithful. And God will be faithful to you today. He'll be faithful to you tomorrow. And he'll be faithful to you next week. God will always be faithful to you as you lean into Christ. Yes, Daniel is about God's grand plan to achieve the unimaginable. You and I cannot, with the wildest of imaginations, begin to picture all that God has in store for you. And yes, we're not getting it all yet, but you will get it all and more. So let your imagination soar because God has so much for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on the Lord. Well, hey, we need to move a little quicker. Not only is there something to know, there's something to consider. Ways the world seeks to mold us. 
Second point, something to consider. Ways the world seeks to mold us. We too easily miss the deeper things of what God is doing. So right, the, the, the deeper thing is that there's a spiritual war. There are these, these gods of Babylon that are trying to control God's people. And the first place we saw it was in their name changes. So I put together a little bit of a chart for you to see. As we look at Daniel, it says, Daniel, his meaning, the name, God is my judge, but what do the enemy gods want? Well, we're going to reassign you. We're going to give you a new identity. We're going to change who you are and call you Belshazzar, which means Bel protect his life or my life. Well, Bel is the title of the Babylonian god Marduk. It means Lord. And so what they wanted Daniel to see is that Marduk is his new Lord. There's going to be a shift in gods here. The same is true with Hananiah. Yahweh is gracious and his name gets changed to Shadrach. And he's going to be fearful of Aku, this other Babylonian god. They're trying to bring them into this. Mishael gets changed to Meshach, right? Azariah gets changed to Abednego. Nego or Nebo, more technically, a servant of Nebo. They wanted Azariah to see himself as a servant of the Babylonian god Nebo. Now let's just pause for a moment. They could answer to their new names, but it doesn't mean they embraced those new names. The world, it says, is the Bible says, is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. And they want to give you a new identity. They don't want you to know that you are precious. You are made in the image of God. The world doesn't want you to think about how infinitely valuable you are. What the world wants and what the world continues to squeeze us into is this idea of evolutionary thought and thinking that just pulls away anything of significance of this God who is the one who made us. They, they, they want to pull us away from him. And some of us begin to embrace that identity. God in his system has made it binary. We don't get to shift this binary concept of God, male and female, yet the world says, oh, you can identify yourself as any way you want. Moves against what God does when he gives us his plan, and his strategy. So the world is constantly there. The Bible in Romans 12 too, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are going to have to either accept what God says or accept what the gods or the world says. It's more palatable if I just say what the world says, but it's really God's behind it, animating, moving, driving all of this. Well, there's another thing that we see here that the world is doing with these guys, and it's in verses 3 and 4. It says in verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defects, handsome, showing aptitude of every, for every 
kind of learning, and informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve. But look at this last line. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Just meditate on that a moment. They want to enculturate them. They want them to imbibe the culture and embrace the Babylonian culture. That last line in verse 4, he says he was to teach them the language, because if you control the language, you start controlling the thinking and the literature. You're going to read it. Well, what's happening in our world today? Just walk into your public library. Look at what's on the shelf. Look at what your children are being exposed to. They just pull a book off the shelf. And it's real easy finding, I bring home a book for my grandchildren, right? Starts out pretty well, and then all of a sudden you get into page six, seven, eight, and you're in just a a little bit, and all of a sudden you find out there's a whole new paradigm being preached to our children. They're teaching the language and literature of a world on fire. Do you see how applicable Daniel is? You start enculturating the people so that they start living and breathing and thinking the way the culture wants them to think. But Daniel would have none of it, as we'll see. But there's a third area, just real briefly. It's in verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Don't miss it. Don't miss it miss it. It's not about food. It's not about wine. What is it about? You want me to tell you, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's about rewards. It's about rewards. Our culture rewards you to get you to keep doing the same things over and over again. We like good food. We like good wine. So what are you going to do? You're going to keep going back to the feeding trough for that good food. And pretty soon you're just cycling back. So what happens to you? Your boss says, hey, I'll give you a raise to keep you going, doing what you want. Never do you stop to ask, God, do you want me to stay here? God, what are you doing in my life? God, where do you want me to go? The world constantly tries to make life softer and easier to continue to pull you along so that you're doing what the world wants. Don't miss it. The world seeks to reward you in ways to keep you in line and keep you coming back. That's the danger. So when I say this, it's something to consider the ways the world seeks to mold us. Give us a new identity. That's the number one thing, the name change. The enculturation, learn their language, We call this, right, political correctness today. Make sure you use the language of the culture. Don't resist it. Don't fight it. Just get in line, right? And then thirdly, the rewards. But let me end, or let me say a little bit. Even while this is happening, God is at work. I want you to see this. I I don't want you to miss this. First of all, in verse 2, God, or the Lord, delivered. This is by no accident, 
They didn't end up in Babylon because it was Babylon. Do you see the undercurrents there? Verse 2, the Lord delivered them. He handed them over to the Babylonians. Nothing touches your life. Nothing unless God says yes and delivers you over. So I'm sitting in the emergency room. I'm meditating on Daniel 1. Nothing touched my wife unless God delivered it over for his purposes and his plans, of which I may never understand. I may never appreciate, but I have God, his hand on it. Secondly, verse 9, God had caused the officials to show favor. Emergency room day one, go home. Emergency room two, day two, go home. Emergency room day three, the emergency room nurse or doctor showed favor. Is that just the doctor showing favor? Maybe it's what Daniel says. God had caused the emergency room doctor to show favor so that Kathy could get into the hospital. You see what I'm saying? If you have eyes to see, you're looking beyond and seeing that there is a God that is faithful that is doing what he says he is going to do. And then in verse 17, God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and wisdom, but it says here, Daniel. So God is doing it. Let me just hit the third point quickly. Something to do. Seek God's greater reward. Seek God's greater reward. I'm going to have to wrap it up. I went a little bit long, but faith has its own rewards. Faith has its own rewards. Let me just say it again. When you trust God, you will be rewarded. I don't know what that reward is going to look like. I'm certainly not talking about the prosperity gospel of money and fame, but I am saying when you trust God, things begin to fall into place and there's a greater reward. I want to call the band out because this closing song, I want us to sing from the heart. God is doing miracles. God is always doing miracles. God is always doing great things. If I could invite you to stand, I want to pray before we go into this song. God, we want to seek your greater rewards. God, we want to seek you. We want to understand you. We want to walk with you. We want to see that even in the midst of a world on fire, in a world that is going crazy, that you are at work, you are doing amazing things, you are doing what is best so that your people would flourish, plans to prosper us. We believe this and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.